I'd like to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 for this second assembly. One short verse there about remembering the things that we have been taught. At break time, my brother got me stirred up about my introduction this morning that maybe I had come a little short of Elijah the prophet. Do all of you remember the Bible story about Elijah the prophet? When he gathered all of Israel together at Mount Carmel? And there were 950 false prophets against one little man of God. And he was just standing there in a loincloth. He hadn't ever been to Saks Fifth Avenue to buy himself a nice suit. And he's just there in a piece of a leathern girdle, the Bible calls it, a wild man. And there's 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the groves. And he this is the length of his sermon. He turns to Israel and he says, If Baal's God, serve him. If the Lord's God, serve Him. But why halt ye between two opinions? And I say that to every young person in here. Why halt between two opinions? If the world's God and the devil's God, then go ahead and serve the world and the devil. But if the Lord Jehovah is God, serve Him. And then he said, let's build an altar. Okay, I'll let you guys go first. Let's see if you can get fire from Baal. Oh, they were dancing and leaping. They had the the best praise band going that you've ever heard in your life. They were slashing themselves. Blood was flying everywhere. They were leaping and screaming. They were into the Spirit like you wouldn't believe. But it wasn't the Spirit of God. And Elijah's over there, that one little man. He's saying, cry a little louder. Your God might be sleeping. Cry a little louder. He might be on a journey. And they did it from morning until evening. And at evening time, the little man of God with the great spirit, the Bible says John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. He drew near to that altar. And my my brother made an interesting point here at break time. What was the scarcest commodity in Israel at that point in time? Water. I want 12 barrelfuls all over this altar. You dig a moat around it and fill it with water. Do you know how scarce water was after three and a half years of no rain? And they poured all that water over it. And Elijah had a simple little prayer. Lord God, show these people that thou art the God of Israel. Fire falls down from heaven, sucks up the water, sucks up the stones, sucks up the dirt, sucks up the offering, burns up everything. And what the people, they fell on their faces and screamed out, The Lord! All caps from Wednesday night. Jehovah. The Lord! He is the God. The Lord, He is the God. Now that was a revival. And Elijah said to Ahab, you better get your chariot going. I hear the sound of rain. And Elijah girded up his loins and outran the chariot to Samaria. We want to be just like Elijah when we speak the truth. We don't want to come short of him. You know, it's comforting to read about Elijah. He was a great man of God. John the Baptist came just like Elijah. But do you know what Elijah was doing 24 hours later? He was grieving because he had received a threat from Jezebel. And he was grieving that there were so few that worship were worshiping the Lord faithfully in Israel. And James 5 wants you to know when it comes to the matter of prayer that Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. We read the story of Elijah praying and it stops raining and of Elijah praying and it starts raining after three and a half years of no rain. And we think, what a man of faith. But we also find him under the juniper tree wishing that he was dead. 
And when we read James 5, it says Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. He was emotionally vulnerable like we can be at times, and yet it's that kind of a man, it says, who prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. Take comfort in that fact. 1 Corinthians 15.2 Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. The Apostle Paul had preached to the city of Corinth the gospel. They had received it. They had agreed to stand in it. By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. If you do not remember the things that you were taught, you can be led astray by a false teacher and lose the practical benefits of salvation that are for this life. The Corinthians had forgotten the resurrection of the dead. All of 1 Corinthians 15 is to establish the resurrection of the dead against the false teachers that were at Corinth that were teaching there was no resurrection from the dead. Brethren, if there's no resurrection from the dead, our religion stinks. Paul said that. If we have hope in Christ in this world only, we are of all men most miserable. It is the hope of future glory that makes our lives in this world of self-denial to be worth it. But it's all dependent on you remembering the gospel. While Paul was alive, they had already received false teachers that were teaching there was no resurrection from the dead. That's how fast it can happen. If you read Psalm 78 last night, you saw how fast the nation of Israel could fall away from the things that they were taught by Moses and others. Let us remember the importance of this text, by which also ye are saved if ye keep in memory. If you don't remember the things of the gospel, you will lose the benefits of the things of the gospel, including the hope of the resurrection, which is the great hope of the believer. Let us be faithful. In remembering the things that God has taught us, let us be faithful in speaking them loudly, plainly, and powerfully like Elijah was. But let us let our lives speak the loudest of all by living the truth of the Bible. Father in heaven, in Jesus' name, and for His glory, and for His honor, and for the benefit of this church and these saints, we thank Thee for Thy precious word and pray Your blessing upon us in this second assembly by the power of the Holy Spirit, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read to you something that Gerald copied out for us about the persecution of the Waldenses, and this is for you young men in particular. What I'm about to read are two lengthy paragraphs. Follow with me. And they describe the testimony of the Waldense children and the Waldensian youth for their knowledge of the Scriptures and their ability to be able to defend the doctrine that they held so dearly that they would lay down their lives for it. Thank you, Gerald. In the time of the persecution of the Waldenses of Merindal and Province, a certain monk was deputed by the Bishop of Cavalian to hold a conference with them that they might be convinced of their errors and the effusion of blood prevented. But the monk returned in confusion, owning that in his whole life he had never known so much scripture as he had learned in these few days that he had been conversing with the heretics. The bishop, however, sent among them a number of doctors, young men who had lately come from the Sorbonne, a seminary, 
which at that time was the very center of theological subtlety at Paris. One of these publicly avowed that he had understood more of the doctrine of salvation from the answers of the little children in their catechisms than by all the disputations which he had ever heard. After describing the inhabitants of the valleys of Frasenir, he proceeds. Their clothing is of the skins of the sheep. They have no linen. They inhabit seven villages. Their houses are constructed of flint stone, having a flat roof covered with mud, which, when spoiled or loosed by the rain, they again smooth with a roller. In these they live with their cattle, separated from them, however, by a fence. They also have two caves set apart for particular purposes, in one of which they conceal their cattle, in the other themselves, when hunted by their enemies. They live on milk and venison, being, through constant practice, excellent marksmen. Poor as they are, they are content, and live in a state of seclusion from the rest of mankind. These are the mountains of northern Italy, southern France, where our ancestors in the faith had to hide themselves from the popes of Rome and persecution on the continent of Europe. Sorry for the interjection. I continue the quote by this doctor who observed them and learned more from their children about the doctrine of salvation than from all the disputations he had heard at seminary in Paris. One thing is very remarkable, that persons externally so savage and rude should have so much moral cultivation. They know French sufficiently for the understanding of the Bible and the singing of psalms. You can scarcely find a boy among them who cannot give you an intelligent account of the faith which they possess. In this, indeed, they resemble their brethren of other valleys. They pay tribute with a good conscience, and the obligations of the duty is peculiarly noted in their confessions of faith. If by reason of civil war they are prevented from doing this, they carefully set apart the sum, and at the first opportunity they send it to the king's tax gatherers. May the Lord bless such a noble testimony of their character by their enemies to convict us to be as noble. If we were put on trial as Bible Christians, is there enough evidence to condemn us? Or do you look so much like the world that it would be hard for anybody to prove that you're really a Christian? Thank you, brother. Outstanding. Did you notice how careful they were about paying tribute? Where did they learn that? From our beloved brother Paul. Would they say something as crazy as God bless the IRS? They would indeed. If there was civil war and they couldn't make their tax payments on time because of war interrupting the collection process, they would set the sum aside and as soon as the war was over, they would pay their taxes, even to the hand that was going to kill them. Just like Paul. Just like our Lord Jesus Christ. Who took the life of our Lord Jesus Christ? Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Caesar had appointed Pilate who washed his hands and turned him over 
to his crucifixion. Understanding that we have of it, and for Bible hermeneutics that teaches us how to use the Word of God and save us from error. I was reminded at break time by some faithful brethren among us that thought my approach through Genesis 5 was okay, but why not just go to Mark chapter 13 and verse 32 where Jesus said that not even the Son of Man knew the day or the hour of His coming. And yet Harold Camping had the audacity to think that he knew the hour, 6 p.m., and the day, March 21st, 2011, though Jesus said he didn't. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 And to search the Scriptures like the noble Bereans. 